<laughs> no, I haven't. It looks better than it normally does. Yeah, wow. <laughs> I'm on cell phone internet right now, guys. Uh, this right here is... No, I better not move the cord too much here. Yeah. <laughs> internet just <laughs> disappears. The whole show goes off. Oh, man. Oh, my goodness. Okay, so before we get the show started, guys, I just want to let you know that um, I have my laptop here. I can actually do this. You can see this is the laptop. It's a laptop. And uh, so if this is a little bit hokey and ghetto, I just moved uh, literally over Thanksgiving. So there was no Thanksgiving episode, if you didn't notice, no episodes at all. Also, this will be the last episode for another week and some change because I'm going to Singapore to shoot some stuff there and I won't be back for about two weeks. So uh, on that note, you ready for the show, Devin? Yeah, let's start the show. In five, four, three, two... Welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me today to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got all the announcements coming out of Japan. We've got crazy Black Friday deals. We've got new firmware for the Sony A7S Mark II. But first, Devin, since I mentioned Black Friday, what did you buy on Black Friday? Oh, way too much Friday? stuff. Way too much stuff. Uh, heed, heed my warning. Stop buying crap you don't need. Um... Uh, for one thing, I convinced myself I needed a proper EVF. Uh, I used to own one of those $250 EVFs you get off eBay. And progressively, I don't know if it's cold or what, but every time I turn it on, it seems to be missing more and more lines out of the display. So you get what you pay for. Uh, and I was looking at the Cineroids for a while, but I decided that because I shoot between things like C300s and DSLRs, I want something that will handle both SDI and HDMI. And I really love the small HD stuff. I love the side viewfinder. I wish that I was around that price point, but I'm just not. It's still just way too expensive for me for a viewfinder. That's all it does is a viewfinder. Um, but so I went ahead and there was a sale. I think it's still going at FNV for a Spectra HD4 with a loop. After you do shipping and taxes and everything else, it's about 750 which isn't bad because that would make it about 150 bucks cheaper than it normally is. Uh, after you add on shipping and everything else. Uh, and it it does SDI in. It's a 720p screen, so it's easy to pull focus. It's got focus piecing, false color, uh, histogram, spectrograph, uh, you know, vector graph, all that kind of stuff that uh, is great to have when you're on location, 900 to 1, contrast ratio, all that kind of stuff. It uses Sony MP. Uh, thank you for bringing up the image. I don't know why I didn't. Um, it's got Sony MP. I love, too, that it also has... XLR power or just like consumer end, like the phono adapters, like we've talked about before on the back there. So you've got multiple ways to power it, uh, as well as just your basic Sony batteries, which I love because somebody always has one and they're cheap and available. And it'll even take the HDMI input and convert that to SDI. So you can. What's the USB use... port on the back of this thing, dude? Do you know? that That's for firmware. Uh, I think they've kind of stopped, but when they first came out with this, probably two or three years ago, they're updating firmware and they added features like uh, the uh, vector graph or whatever uh, for your color and stuff like that. So the USB is for firmware updating. Um, I find it interesting that they include both power ports, they have mini XLR and the phono connection, uh, but still. Uh, so much stuff. I mean, I'll also do DSLR scale. It'll do flipping uh, inverted, flip, flop, either way, and stuff like that, as well as punch-ins. And it's got four programmable buttons that do whatever you want, basic EVF stuff. But for me, it was about getting both kinds of inputs in a really small package that I can put on any rig. Uh, 
And I like the fact it's got a rosette on the side too, because that's going to make it easier for me to mount and keep it in its place. But for the most part, that's way too much money. Um, and then as well, I bought a bunch of stuff from Film Riot, because if you don't know, Film Riot, as they've been advertising, uh, has stock music, uh, royalty-free music, stock sound files for impacts, gunshots, I had effects. no idea. Yeah, they've got they've got scores, and they'll give you stems of it. I mean, it's not um, it's 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 not a ton of stuff for me. It was always a little pricey. Uh, that may just be me. Most of the time for music, I like going to a place like Audio Jungle where there's a wide selection. I can pick the exact track I like that really fits for whatever the client wants. Um, as opposed to with them, they kind of have a few cinematic pieces that you can kind of change, and they give you stems, and you can evolve it over time. Uh, but I felt like it was always a little too pricey. Here, they're they're giving away the hit sound effects, uh, like fire assets, uh, as well as music scores and everything else for like... 20 bucks 30 bucks or something like that so at that price point i went wow this is really reasonable uh they still have a black friday sale where they're going to do like hour by hour selling off different stuff all their stuff is super high quality like while i I may be like ah it's a little too pricey for me it's all the production quality the audio quality and everything is there the fire assets are completely in raw you've got like 24 bits you can play with for it so a lot of great stuff uh and it finally came down to a price where i was all over it so i bought up a bunch of that crap probably spent like 200 bucks in their store holy crap bucks. man so you're already up to a thousand dollars right now <laughs> yeah right um but that i think that was about it i was eyeing the aspen microphones because they say on monday they're supposed to go down to about 30 or 40 bucks a microphone and i always like having extra lobs around because uh they just tend to break on you at the <laughs> worst times possible uh dj you said that you've had some experience with aspen microphones you've owned a few yeah i've got uh, in fact right here is an aspen mic and i'm bringing up the link here to dslrfilmdoop.com right now where i actually <laughs> discussed uh, this exact thing the uh aspen mic and here i'll show you guys my screen so you can see what i'm talking about here is very much identical to this JK Mike J044 lav mic. Um, Other than the cable thickness, the mics sound pretty much identical, and the JK mic is uh, far more affordable than the Aspen mic. I've got audio tests here if you want to go listen to them side by side, but... uh, you know, for 50, I think the normal price of the Aspen mic is $54. The JK mic is always $29. So when I see the Aspen mic fall down to the $30 price range, it's like, oh, wait a minute. So now you're selling it for how much, you know, your competitors are making the same amount of money off of. It's the same diaphragm in the microphone, same clip. You do not get the cute little tin uh, that comes with the <laughs> Aspen mic, which, I mean, that part is fine, but I have like a little uh fishing tackle deal that i keep my lav mics in and i was opening this up to find the actual lav mic and when i open it up it doesn't even have the aspen mic in it it has a couple of these jk mics in there instead and (laughs) i will tell you right now like uh, this uh cabling is a little bit weaker on the jk mic than it is on the aspen the aspen is slightly thicker but audio quality wise they sound identical same clip uh same adapter and everything uh in fact you can get the jk with a uh, lock-on sennheiser style uh, clip as opposed to just this plain old 3.5 millimeter clip so uh it's in some ways it's a little bit better even than the Aspen lav mic. So uh, definitely check those out. Um, 
$30, either one for that price is probably a decent deal. Uh, I'm with you, Devin. I keep a ton of lav mics <laughs> in my collection just because I break them all the time. I have a pile of freaking Sennheiser ME01 lav mics that have just been bent to crap and no longer work anymore because the cable's been used so much. My well, black- and if it's... Oh, if ahead. it's not if it's not the microphone itself that breaks, it's always the clip. Uh, you know, Rode. Uh, I've got one of those Rode lav mics, um, and I love them because you can change out the connector on them. So I got a Sennheiser, got an XLR, it makes it pretty yeah. versatile. But uh, the the clip is the same thing as like the G two clip, which is a small piece of aluminum that's just kind of soldered to a clip. And if you're not careful, that stuff breaks off all the time. I think I've re-soldered my road clip maybe two or three times now uh, because it breaks off all the time. So if nothing else, not even just for having uh, the extra mic in case the mic cable breaks, because that happens all the time on lavs, is the the clip itself. Because I like that a lot of these, it sounds weird, but these cheaper mics have clips that just kind of have rubber and then you just put the cable in the rubber and it holds it. But for some reason... Uh, both uh, Sennheiser and Rode seem to believe in holding the lav by the body rather than by the cable and have the cable support it. I kind of understand that with Rode because they have a much longer capsule, uh, and I don't know if that helps them with their pickup pattern or something like that. But uh, for some of the smaller mics, uh, and especially like the the ones that the Sennheiser comes with MK or whatever it is, I'm just surprised that you know they they you, they do clips in that fashion because I see a lot of more higher end microphones where the clip is about holding the cable, not about holding the uh, the mic body itself. Well, the Sennheiser is actually, because it's a, if you guys can't visualize this, it's a loop that goes around the mic diaphragm itself, and there's just a little indentation in the diaphragm, and then that loop kind of fits into that little area. I have mics that have been in the clip for so long that they've actually worn through the paint, and you can see the brass that's underneath of it because it's been used so much. Uh, this is a clip yeah. from the... Uh, JK slash uh, Aspen mic and you can see kind of what Devin's talking about here it's just a little plastic indent that you pop your wire into pretty nice the other thing and I use this a lot more than I do the clips themselves I have these disposable packs of 20 of uh, lav stickers and you put your lav mic into it and it's uh, sticky on one side and it's like a muff on the other side and you can stick that to the inside of the shirt and it keeps it away so you don't get that like skin rubbing noise uh, they're super affordable I think I pay like $15 for a 20 pack and the stickiness lasts all day I mean some people have gotten irritated with me because it's left goo on their shirt but I don't really give a crap because it's not my shirt whatever but the point is those are really sure. nice too if you're looking for other options for mounting also have you seen some of those like uh, crazy uh, built-in lav mics for like ties and uh wigs and so on oh i mean yeah. i've i was on a, a shoot uh last year and this guy i mean i don't know where he got him or who paid for him but he had a bunch of these like beautiful like it, they're built into clothing pieces the mics are in there already ready to go and he's like here wear this you know and it's like this uh button for your shirt that says like uh you know i voted for so and so or a, a tie it was a freaking bow tie that had a microphone built into it and <laughs> he was even showing me he had these like wigs and the wigs were basically like set up with audio built in so that you could mic someone mm-hmm. via their wig and it, i don't know when i would ever use something like that but it's pretty freaking sweet to know that it's out there and it exists you know what i mean oh yeah well and it, it it's not also too it wouldn't take much to kind of engineer some of that stuff yourself if you're a diyer 
Um, you know, especially if you're getting decent audio out of mics that cost, you know, uh, 25, 30 bucks, like the JKs, then there's no reason why you couldn't build a custom solution if you know you're going to use it, you know, more than once, uh, considering that, uh, you know, most of the time when I, uh, we're working with mics, we may be using mics that, a lot of mics that cost like $500. So you wouldn't, you know, put that in a one use application, but, uh, for cheaper mics like this, like I said, I always prefer having multiple mics on hand when it comes to lavs than having one uh, because they always seem to fail at exactly the worst time that they could. So, all right, uh, so one more, something to keep in mind. One more thing uh, before we get into the actual news: my Black Friday purchase, and I did not make nearly as many as Devin. <laughs> um, I just bought a few utilitarian items. I'm going to be flying here uh, next week, and my battery is getting a little bit old for recharging my phone and uh, other portable devices. And they had this uh, 20,000 milliamp hour battery pack on sale for $21. Uh, so I pulled the trigger on that. It's normally 20 like... amp hours. It's huge. Yeah, it's really long and flat. It has three two point or 2.1 amp uh, outputs, so you can charge up to three devices. You can charge your phone like seven times off of this thing. It is rather large but uh yes. pretty sweet and then the other thing i picked up was one of those crazy uh anchor bay uh multi-power units and this is a 10 port uh usb power unit uh, supply 60 watts so that's two amps per port the thing is hefty as i'll get out but uh it was on sale for 19 bucks normally uh, like totally 40 dollars. so yeah both of those are gonna clean up my uh, cable management issues for charging and it's are you an cool. iphone guy i uh, know i'm not i'm an android guy and uh, really okay because i have the note 4 and the note 4 has quick charging so when i made those purchases probably like six months ago uh my focus was on getting ones that did quick charging which there still isn't many on the market that do quick charging that are a good size and are decent size as well as um those uh those bricks i don't think there's one with 10 ports yet that are quick charging but i've used one of those anchor uh, five bay or six bay ones for charging GoPro cameras and all kinds of stuff. They're super useful, especially on a trip too. Uh, when I road trip with me and my friends or like family, I just bring that. And instead of having five chargers, everyone's trying to plug into every outlet of the hotel room. Everyone just plugs into this bank and we're done. It's like the longest before the show talk ever, but I want to say is. on the quick charging, <laughs> and this is something that they don't tell you about the quick charging. They'll say like, charged to 80% in so much time or charged to 45% in so much time. But they don't tell you is the last like 20 or 30% still takes the traditional amount of time to charge your battery. So yeah. uh, a lot of those quick charging things, you'll see your charge go all the way up to like 65 or 70% really fast. And then the last, however much to get to hundred percent still takes the same amount of time. And if you don't charge your battery all the way and you just use a quick charge all the time, it will degrade the battery over time and, and you'll get fewer charges out of it. And doesn't that uh, work as a, um, I, and I know that because I've already swapped out the battery in my Note 4, but it might be something to be mindful of if you don't have a replaceable battery. Um, and don't they do that because of uh, heat issues? The fact that like that last 10% of the battery really gets the battery toasty because it takes so much energy in order to get it up to that top end of capacity. So as a fail safe, they decrease the charge rate so that it doesn't blow up your battery. Yeah, there's part of it is the the thermal curve on the battery, but the other issue is the chemical reaction in the battery itself. Uh, charging to seventy five percent, it takes a lot of energy, but the 
the time to get that portion of the battery charged with the chemical reaction that's going inside. Uh, never mind. This is getting way too deep into it. Welcome like, to battery science with yeah, DJ and Devin. Battery science is really messy and complicated, <laughs> and uh, you know it's all over the place. I'm not going to dig into that. But anyway, just be careful if you're using the quick charge because it'll derate the life of your battery, the number of charges it can handle, unless you charge it to 100% on a regular basis. So keep that in mind. It's only for emergencies, not for everything else. Devin, are you ready for the news, man? I am ready for the news. Time for the news. Time for the news. All right, so we've missed a couple of days since Thanksgiving kind of fell into our normal show schedule. And there's a couple things on here that I wanted to talk about. First up is this really crazy Aladdin Eyelight. Now, this thing's about the size of your wallet. It has all of the features of a full-sized uh, LED light panel, and it's super tiny, has an internal battery that'll give you about two hours of battery life, a quarter 20 mount, a metal frame, and a color adjustable temperature settings, as well as a CRI of 98, which is pretty darn good. Uh, they're expecting the retail price to be about 115 Right now, they're bootleggers selling it on Amazon for 150 Devin, what do you think of that price for such a tiny compact light? Uh, it's a little pricey for me. Um, I can understand, though. This makes sense to me in the pro market. Uh, if you're the kind of guy who spends $1,000 per LED one by one uh, one like a one foot by one foot panel for you. You spend eight hundred or nine hundred bucks because it's got ninety eight CRI or something like that. Then yeah, this is um this is probably just right in your wheelhouse, and that's an acceptable price for a light of this size. Uh, for me, I'm usually more concerned about output on the cheap than I am concerned about necessarily the quality of light. Uh, obviously I'm, you know, trying to find something better than like, you know, a CFL that makes everyone look green. But at the same time, for me, price per performance is way more important than, um, uh, having the absolute best quality. So at that price, I would definitely take a pass on it. It just doesn't do enough for me to justify using it. It's a small light and it can fit in lots of places, be used in lots of different ways. Um, and it's great to see, you know, the market going in this direction in terms of, uh, LED lights, because, they're if built right they're pretty superior to uh the uh, flow lights uh cfl options and the uh, fluorescent options that have been out there for a while so i'm excited to see people embracing this technology more but no it's just way too expensive for me just for for how little power it's going to pump out i saw the video review on it i've seen you know people use it it's it's like it's cool it's a really cool tiny light and i like it but the fact that I can't swap batteries in and out on it, the fact that it's um, you know more pricey than other options, I love the size. I just don't love the price. I don't know, man. I was looking at this, and at first I, I kind of went the same way as you. I was like, ah, well, this is too expensive. But then I was thinking, wait a minute. This has a battery built in, so I don't have to buy an extra battery. Uh, mm -hmm. Sure, the light output's not going to be huge, but a set of like three or four of these would be perfectly paired with the Sony a7s or a7s mark II. <laughs> like that's all the light you need you just dial it up to 12,800 iso and start shooting and you've got enough light to pretty much light uh, a scene sure. with these. yeah i guess if you're an a i i usually don't light by like what's the least amount of light i can use in this situation i've cheated before and actually um I was shooting a, a horror scene where a lady's face gets ripped off and we weren't really supposed to be there. We snuck into this uh, park and it was like past their closing time. The park closed at like 10 
And so we all just downloaded this white screen app for our cell phone, grabbed the A7S, and all three of us held our phones up, set the the uh, white balance on the, the phones, and then shot. And we were able to light the entire scene with three cell phone screens that were just turned vaguely white and aimed at our actors and actresses. Well, and, and as a DIY option, um, for people who have cell phones and stuff like that, I, I've actually found that uh, those those screens that's using your phone as a light or whatever actually has pretty accurate color same thing with the flash on the back uh which you know may cause overheating issues be careful don't run your flash for an hour uh, and expect your phone to be okay but uh you know using the screens and stuff like that i'm surprised at kind of the quality of light that comes out of them i guess it's just consumer demand for a lot of high-end smartphones to have really good color representation uh but those tend to be like kind of exactly around 5,600 and uh, are pretty easy to white balance off of and use multiples and have them kind of match. Well, the other thing to think about, too, is when you're shooting and that low light level, your white balance is less noticeable. <laughs> you kind of sure. get this like, I, I, I don't know how to describe it exactly, but when you start taking the A7S up to a super high ISO, like 25,000 or so, uh, you know, your white balance is a lot less critical because you sort of get that shooting at night, night for day look. And because yeah, of that, do. it kind of it's it's, it, it's it, a little desaturated. I get what you're saying. It's a little desaturated. It's a little colder. It gives you some wiggle speaking. room and post to yeah. like kind of get it where you need to be. And you're still going to have to tweak it no matter what. And it's lovely to be able to do that. Uh, that's why I, when I saw these, I was like, oh, man, built in battery probably uh, puts but, out more power it, than my cell phone screen. I could totally sure, light a scene with these. Two hours. I don't know. I guess if a lot of your shootings within two hours. But for me, I'd be too worried about it running out of power. And then I don't have an option to immediately get power back into it. It needs to be charged. So they that... did mention in there uh, when they were talking about it in one of the interviews I watched, they said that it's two hours at maximum output. But if you go down to 90 percent, it's three to four hours. Yeah. And that's and that's something I've noticed with just about every LED light panel I have. DJ hasn't succumbed to the LED gods yet. So uh, he's getting there. Uh, but uh, just about every LED panel you can get, even if you buy the cheap $25 ones, the difference between 90 and 100%, and I think this has to do with light being a logarithmic scale and a bunch of complicated stuff that's way over my head, but uh, if, if you just notch it back a bit and you don't run it at full brightness, so sometimes in an interview this means moving the light closer and turning down on the brightness... Um, you, I end up, you know, doubling uh, my uh, my time on my light than I would have otherwise. So that that's something to keep in mind. It kind of goes back to the whole battery thing that we started getting into about. Uh, but yeah, when you run these any LED at a hundred percent, it's it chews through a battery, and if you knock that off a bit, they tend to run really great for a long period of time. Other high quality lights. Uh, they'll be they'll be less of a difference. I feel like the cheaper ones, you can almost double your battery life by going down to eighty percent. Uh, where the more expensive ones are making better use, they just have better like kind of transformers and stuff like that regulating the voltage. Uh, that on those guys, you don't get as much of an improvement, but uh, now, something to keep in mind. You've done the research on this, and I have not because I mostly still use traditional lights. Are they using PWM pulse width modulation for the the LEDs to dim them, like turning them That's on? That's a good question. That's a good question. Uh, it depends on how cheap the light is. Well, I would assume as long as your frequency ratio for your on, on cycle is above like 60 or 70, you're not going to get any flicker. You know, if you start um, getting to... No, no, you will still get flicker. Oh, will you? As long if, if your light is out of sync, you'll get flicker. So it doesn't matter what that number is. 
Um, I mean, there is a point where if you're talking about a frequency of maybe around uh, a thousand hertz, then you won't be able to see it. But uh, let's say that it's flickering at uh, 200 hertz, which is not the same as 24 or 60, 59.94, anything like that. What you'll notice is that you won't see flickering, but you will see a very slow and very slight. The higher it goes in frequency, the less you'll notice. Like this. a pulsation? You'll see a, not pulsation. You'll see a rolling shutter effect ah. going across it. And so what you'll see is your backlight, what's behind you, you'll see it slowly go like this down the wall because huh. it's not perfectly in sync. So, um, But no, most lights done these days, the very early LED panels and the super cheap ones still do this. Um, but now just about all of them are doing voltage in order to do it, which isn't as efficient. You don't get as much battery life out of it, uh, but you can get super great performance out of it. Uh, and I'm kind of surprised in a few ways because like on my Philips Hue, I love my Philips Hue lights, uh, but those guys flicker like crazy. You cannot shoot video with Philips Hue's lights. Um, no matter what I do, if you cast them on a wall, a white wall, you'll see all those lines, many lines. It flickers like crazy. All the LED lights I have, I test. I run my shutter speed up to 4,000, uh, and I record some video and see if I can notice anything on a wall. And uh, for the most part, just about all of them made today use voltage regulation. So uh, with like an analog potentiometer, that's a cheap way of doing it. The more expensive ones will have a digital potentiometer, and I think those are the ones that tend to be pulse width modulation, but I haven't tried them all, so I wouldn't know. Well, yeah. I mean, well, even if it was a digital pot, it's still going to like a controller, and then the controller can you know vary the resistance based on yeah. whatever the input yeah, is. Yeah, if it's if it's voltage, but it's one of those where I feel like for a lot of them, their circuitry, uh, just to make it cheaper, uh, they'll they'll do pulse width modulation on their circuitry uh, because then they don't have to worry about like changing voltage which causes heat and other things and well and doing pwm would be more power efficient too because you have an off cycle yeah. and an on cycle um for those of you not familiar and, and now we're getting deep into science here <laughs> the the pulse width modulation basically a hundred percent would be all the way on and it would pulse voltages at the leds in a frequency range between zero and a hundred percent so a hundred percent would be the light on all the time and you know 20 percent would be it on for every 20th of a cycle you know 20 percent of the entire cycle so if they do that then it's on for 20 20 percent and then it's off for 80 percent and that off time you're and, saving power and keep in mind too it's not just leds um cfls and other fluorescent tubes also have a 60 hertz flicker uh most of the ones made for filming they do stuff with the circuitry that i don't know that kind of negates this but if you start doing high speed, you start doing like 120 frames or something like that on a lot of fluorescent lights, even some of the cheaper ones that are made for filming, you'll start to notice that flicker because fluorescent works off of a 60 hertz flicker in the way that it's developed. Uh, and then if your LEDs are pulsed with modulation, you'll definitely notice it when you start doing uh, high uh, high frame rate video. Yeah, doing constant uh, lighting for photography can be a really weird deal if you start getting above shutter speeds of like 180 or so. Uh, yeah. And speaking of power, Devin, we had a question a couple weeks ago, and we've kind of we haven't gotten back to this until now. <laughs> we've completely uh, ignored it for weeks. Yeah, no, for weeks we and weeks, uh, a, a number of people were commenting asking about battery types and some of the batteries that we mentioned. Now we've talked about V-Lock batteries and Anton Bauer batteries and Gold Mount. Mm -hmm. Devin, why don't you go through those three types of batteries? And like, kind of help them understand what we're talking about when we when we mention these um, industrial standard batteries. Sure, sure. Putting me on the spot. Um, so, 
uh, the question here is with the batteries, these are kind of big end batteries. This is the kind of stuff that most people strap onto large ENG cameras that you've heard me talk about before, those big shoulder news cameras. This is the kind of stuff people attach to Arri Alexas, Blackmagic Cinema cameras, and Reds and whatnot. So um, the question here, uh, gold mount, first off, to get one thing out of the way, gold mount and Anton Bauer mount per se is the exact same mounting system. Uh, gold mount's just the non Yeah, one's name. branded and the other one's <laughs> non-branded. One's branded, one's not, because Anton Bauer is a company that makes batteries, lots of big fancy batteries, and they're considered the premier of like the best batteries to buy. Uh, so the difference between gold mount and uh, V-mount there really isn't. Uh, for one thing, the V-mount system is very popular. It comes on just about every cheap piece of uh, gear you get from China for your shoulder rigs or like, hey, add some extra battery power to your Black Magic or something like that. They all love using V-mounts because I think V-mount in general is a cheaper design system. Uh, so me, on the other hand, my whole experience has been with gold mount. Uh, and so why is that? Well, not that I speak from experience because I don't have a years of experience working with these kind of batteries but from all the guys i talk to who work every day in the field for cbs fox news whatever else uh their cameras they've all put gold mount plates on for one thing everyone's using the same battery so if you need to help out a buddy you can throw him a battery and it works with his system Uh, but the real reason i heard is that the v mounts just aren't secure Uh, if you jostle them you punch them hard enough you hit something you hit a wall uh, they tend to unmount themselves kind of easily now there like there is a locking system there's a lever and stuff like that there's a locking system but something about the instructional design makes it slightly less secure than gold mount so uh so most of the news guys i know run gold mount batteries uh yeah and as you saw there v mount has a few features where you can stack certain v mounts on top of each other and v mounts are super uh compatible with lots of things i think too also v mount works on some kind of tripod head or something like that it's supposed to be a universal system that i don't think really took on so everyone went over to gold mount but in general uh these batteries are not like your canon batteries as you can tell just by the size and weight uh, but they'll come in nickel metal hydrate. They'll come in lithium ion. Today, the standard's lithium ion, but there's requirements that you can't have this much lithium ion on a plane. Uh, not that I've seen anyone pulled over for it or stopped for it from getting on a plane, but technically, FAA law says you can't have, I think it's something like a, a 150 watt uh, lithium ion on a plane. Yeah, and some one package. Most of the VLOX in Anton Bowers will go up to like 190 watts or better, depending on the capacity. I mean, they're massive massive they, batteries they are massive we're talking about stuff if you get like a hundred watt hour battery it'll run whatever dslr rig evf external recorder and led light you have attached to your camera for the whole day without question uh that's how big these guys are uh, one thing to keep in mind though all these batteries are using kind of a standard 14 volt system and your sony mp batteries your canon batteries your panasonic batteries all basically run somewhere around seven like 7.2, 8.4, they all kind of have their own thing, but uh, this is 14 volts uh, in general, which can be good or bad. You'll notice a lot of like LED lights and stuff like that will accept something like 6 to 14 volts. So uh, depending on what you're hooking up to your rigging, uh, these batteries can be very universal. Now you can get voltage adapters and stuff like that to bring them into a voltage to make it work with your camera. That's sketchy stuff to do it on your own. Well, now uh, some hold people on a second. Design and engineer it. Yeah, there are uh, there are a ton proper of solution. really cheap proper solutions for V-Lock batteries that allow a seven point two 
all the way down to a USB level 5.0 output voltage uh, via internal voltage regulator. And uh, this example I'm showing up here, you can buy these for like 69 to $79. And with those taps, like if you look at your, your battery on your Canon camera, for example, Sure, the battery says 7.2, but in reality, as the battery discharges, the voltage is going to go down, and your camera mm-hmm. actually has an operating range of you know roughly five and a half volts up to like eight and a half volts. So yeah, it, somewhere it, it, in it that has range, a protection circuit it regulates, uh, but depending on how well it's made, you may notice some squirrely performance. You may notice like uh, it doesn't know exactly how charged a battery is when you start to hook up these big batteries to it and stuff like that because of the way that the regulation works, but. The other thing that makes these big batteries different is the fact that just about all of them and most of the plates include something called a D-tap or a P-tap. I hear that used interchangeably. I think technically a D-tap is supposed to be on the plate and a P-tap is supposed to be on the battery, but it doesn't matter because everyone just uses these terms like crazy. And what that is is it's a small two-port connection that just gives you straight 14 volts from the battery. Uh, That's convenient in a lot of ways where I need to quickly get some power off of my battery, but my plate is feeding my camera battery or feeding power to my camera and I don't have like a second outlet kind of plug things into. So this P-tap system or D-tap is built for getting monitors, lights or whatever else also running off the same battery. So it is, these things are built to run your entire rig off of one battery. And if you just have a DSLR, there's not much of a point unless your battery life's really crappy and you want something that'll last you all day. But even then, Sony MP batteries are lighter and cheaper to do. Uh, but No uh, locks on why- a Sony MP battery, though, man. <laughs> no locks. Yeah, no, well, it, it, it depends because some LED lights I buy, actually, they create locks for the batteries. But... Uh, In this case, uh, you know, this is really great for if you're like me and there's situations where you're doing documentary style and you know you're going to run an external record or you're going to run an EVF. Instead of charging batteries and pumping batteries and all those, you wire it all up into one giant battery that lasts you all day. Um, The reason why news guys use these is it's funny. News cameras with, you know, their little even now when they convert to LED lights. Uh, they have wireless receivers that they power off of these things and everything else. These batteries maybe last three hours or four yeah. hours for one of them because their cameras are so battery hungry. And even though I think Sony is the people who make V-mount or created that standard, uh, just because you buy a Sony ENG does not mean you need to get a V-mount. You can just take the plate off and put your own plate on. That's the one thing about news cameras that's kind of interesting is they build them all to be really modular and just about every connection in and out of those cameras is some kind of standard that you can use with somebody else's equipment. So uh, it's it's an interesting power option. Uh, you know, we've talked about this before of some gold mounts that come on uh, sale and stuff like that or are interesting in one way or another. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, my recommendation is to find a decent brand because it's one thing if you spend 50 bucks on a Sony MPF and then it dies on you after a year. But if you're going to spend like $250 on a battery, you want to make sure it's going to last you for more than a year and a half. So get a decent brand, get a cheap plate, and uh, you can start running your gear all day. I personally like uh, Swisstronics stuff. Uh, they have Swisstronics makes good stuff. Yeah, they yeah. have some really good indicators on their batteries. They've got those batteries that break down into multiple sections so that you can get it under the limit for you know plane travel. Uh, also, get yourself a dummy battery with a barrel connector for these setups. Like they sell mm-hmm. uh, dummy batteries for pretty much every camera type. The you know, and if you look at your battery plate, if you're not familiar with the dummy battery, there's a little knockout 
on your battery plate for your camera and if you when you pop that lid open you just push the tab in and you can run the cable out and once you have something plugged into that you can run your camera as Devin said for an entire shoot all day long especially if you're gonna have it on a rig if you're not gonna have it on a rig it's less conducive but I would still recommend that over using an external battery grip uh, I've had problems with that in the past mm-hmm. so you know doing it that way is a little bit more professional also if you can if you find the barrel connector that has a twist lock system or some kind of screw on connector, those are much better than the just plug in units because they can come apart. So uh, yeah, sure mini XLR, them. mini XLR is probably the best connection for it. I know it sounds weird, but in the uh, professional industry for uh, ENG and documentary and stuff like that. Uh, Mini XLR, which some people may use with law of body packs or something like that for audio, um, they also have a standard of that Mini XLR that's for power, just like there's a big boy standard of a four pin XLR that's for power uh, for EVS. And that's a standardized system in terms of what voltages are supposed to be where on that system. So and one more thing uh, before we move on, because we got a lot to talk about today. Um, You don't necessarily need to if you're starting out on this, you don't necessarily need to buy a thousand dollar charging system for these batteries because i've looked there really isn't any systems that are like under maybe 600 or 800 bucks for charging up these gigantic batteries especially if you're only going to use one if you're like oh i just have a dslr i want to use it all day i'm only going to use one battery you can get chargers that just charge off of that uh, d tap slash p tap yeah that, that goes since that's directly wired to the cells basically i mean there's some charging circuitry in there but since it's wired to the cells you can actually charge straight through that you don't need a big giant heavy rig that you snap the battery into in order to charge it uh, so that's something to keep in mind if you're trying to get into this on the cheap, uh, you know, that you don't need to spend uh, over $1,000 to, you know, get power like this. You can get it for cheaper, but like I said, get a good battery from a good brand or a name brand. You can go out and do that research. Um, that that It's going to last you, and it's going to last you for years. I know some people who buy just Anton Bauer because they just believe that's the only battery to buy, and... I've seen Anton Bowers that keep 90% of their runtime over eight or 10 years after being used multiple times a week. So, you know, it's um, sometimes you get what you pay for. In this case, I wouldn't pay that much for a battery because technology changes so fast. Uh, but also don't don't buy the really cheap Chinese stuff. Don't sort by price and pick the cheapest <laughs> one and expect it to work for a really long time. Because I'll tell you what, um, just like the Sony MPF batteries, where sometimes you crack them open and they're, the, half of it is just lead weights and it doesn't actually have cells in it, uh, you might find a similar situation with some of these uh, gold mount batteries and V mounts. So yeah, and I'm looking on. Uh on B&H right now and you can find DTAP chargers and I was just showing one on screen yeah. a second ago for 50 bucks uh, $49 and this will take care of the charging for those batteries in, because you know, each you battery each battery has especially if it's a decent brand has a built-in charging circuit that it'll turn itself off when it's done charging uh, that's part of the reason why the price is so expensive is the fact that there's a lot of brains and circuitry in the battery itself so that this battery doesn't need brains outside of it to keep it safe and to keep it operating and that's why that charger is only 50 bucks because all that thing is is basically 14 volts of maybe you know five amps or something like that pumped into two wires and the battery knows what to do with it how to charge itself and keep itself from blowing up so Buy, buy decent batteries, guys. <laughs> All right, so let's go on to another yes. deal, and this is something I kind of wanted to share with everybody. I've got a link to this in the show notes. Uh, I also tweeted about this, but the SanDisk uh, SSDs were on sale for 
$199, and this is a 960 gig SSD. Uh, Read-write speeds are pretty standard in the 500 range. Um, these appear to be a rebranded Crucial M500 series drive. Uh, the price, though, is well under $100 less than the Crucial price, and even OZZ, who was recently purchased by, I think, Toshiba, um, doesn't have prices to beat this. Uh, SanDisk, they just... They were just sold, I believe, to Western Digital here uh, a couple months so, ago, yeah. but they still have them for sale on Amazon. I'm looking right now, and $199 gets you a massive SSD, freaking amazing price for what you're getting here. And this is from Amazon, so you can see I, I unfortunately now live in a state where I have to pay taxes on Amazon purchases, which is uh, rather frustrating. But if you're looking for a large SSD for editing and you want to save some money, I know there are faster drives out there, but there aren't faster drives at this price. In fact, there aren't a lot of drives in that price range. Uh, that's about 20 cents a gig. Devin, are you going to jump on this yes. or are you going to wait? Uh, man, I want to jump on it, but I'm going to wait. Why? Um, I already got one of these for previously. I'm holding up a SanDisk Extreme Pro, which isn't the fastest thing they make, but it's a 480 gig drive uh, that I got from a certain production. And I've got a buddy who's going to sell me his SanDisk drive 480 for about 80 bucks. So for right now, I'm going to raid both of these up in zeros. Obviously, make sure you have backups because it'll end horribly raiding zero. But I'm going to put up both of these guys into a one terabyte raid and get some really good performance out of it. That's a little bit better than what you'd get out of the single one terabyte. Um that's a little bit more of an advanced solution, but that's, uh, and I always recommend too, especially when it comes to SSDs, it's like just buy the biggest one because you're already maxing out your six gigabit port. Uh, but in my case, since I already have a kind of a cheaper option, I'm going to be rolling with that for a while before I jump over and start getting one terabyte SSDs. Now tell me you're not going to use software RAID this time. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll have all the proper RAID card because proper RAID cards are really important, especially ones <laughs> with battery backup so that uh, stuff doesn't get corrupt. Oh, man. Uh, but even more important than proper RAID cards is backups. And I love doing cloud storage backups uh, because you never know if your entire computer will light on fire. So if you're looking for a big SSD, uh, these are really well priced. Um, I'm predicting and I'm kind of. Crucials in... are great SSDs, too. They're yeah. like. They've got fantastic track record. They last forever. It's a great SSD. This isn't just like, oh, this is cheap, guys. It's like, no, this is cheap and good. Yeah, and I have some crucial M500 series drives in my collection. I have a lot of um, Samsung drives, also the 850 Evo and the 840 Evos. But uh, definitely something to check out if you're looking for upgrade in speed. And if you're editing a lot of uh, HD and even 4K streams, having an SSD can make a significant difference in the smoothness of your timeline a well worth investing definitely check those out now speaking of checking out i didn't know this but apparently asden broke into the wi-fi market for audio we've seen road we've seen <laughs> yeah i pulled this one up for you yeah we, we've seen all these other companies i didn't even think about asden Asden makes some really cheap wireless units that are still in the vhf band and they also make some nicer units here and actually I've got this one in front of me. This is my uh, kit. They're not. They're not too bad. I, I've got the the three thirty series dual transmitter, so you can put two lav packs on a single receiver, and you don't have to have multiple receivers all over your which, camera. Which is a really nice option. Sometimes you only get that in like the 
like two thousand dollar Sony option. Yeah, for this UHF is the only receivers. sub sub thousand dollar UHF uh, dual receiver system that I've found, uh, and it's good. The audio quality on this isn't as good as my Sennheiser uh, G series units, but it's pretty decent. You put a good lava mic on here, and most of the time, it's not even an issue. Uh, the controls on them are a little hokey. Uh, for example, this thirty five BT has a screwdriver. <laughs> inside of this <laughs> for a subtle volume adjustment which is the dumbest thing ever and they're made out of plastic so they're not nearly as durable as some of the uh sennheiser or sony uh uwp mm -hmm. units but now as it is making these wireless uh giga or i mean 2.4 gigahertz so basically wi-fi band units and they're called the pro xd now devin have you messed around with any of these because the ones i've tested were kind of iffy there were a couple of if, generic versions that use the same chipset and they just sure it, and i remember that i remember when the i don't know what to call it the march of the chinese 2.4 gigahertz uh, audio receivers because uh, I remember many different brands throwing their names around on them, and I remember them all over eBay. Well, and Monoprice um, even has their own flavor. Mon yeah, M Monoprice has their own, which I'm not sure how good that is. I have uh, it I've in the studio. I've played with yeah. it. It's kind of crummy. <laughs> is the audio um, quality crummy, or is it like the reception that's crummy? Uh, it's a little bit of both, actually. So using okay. the Wi-Fi band, I put it into an area with like pretty decent Wi-Fi saturation. There's... There was 14 channels uh, or 14 different Wi-Fi connections available in the area I tested it in, and I was getting dropouts at about 35 feet or less. Um, also, audio quality, the microphones that are included with the uh, you know monoprice set are obviously not very good. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. They true. have a cell phone connector, so it's a four uh, four ring TRRS. Uh, connector as opposed to a regular connector so you have to use an adapter if you want to plug it into anything else uh audio quality on the units themselves like transmission wise even if you put a good mic on there uh, not amazing not great uh the road units have some frequency control and frequency hopping and uh, kind of break up the bandwidth somehow and i'm not sure how that works but the mono price is basically just audio encoded to wi-fi and encoded back out into audio on the other it's side it's a very simple system yeah and you run into um latency issues as well so you oh, start wow, that's yeah not, good. not really bad but you'll see like a frame or two slip now and again and it's uh, sort no, of weird um i mean you can adjust it in post it's not that big a deal and if you're using like an onboard mic it's definitely an upgrade especially since monoprice includes a cold shoe adapter with it and pretty much everything you need and it's using the bandwidth both ways so you can send back audio to the person um and and they can wear like a, a headphone mm -hmm. piece or whatever and, and hear what's going on so i guess you could read lines to someone if you really wanted to but it's just a I don't know, I, and I'm I'm skeptical of this Asden unit here as well. I, you know what? And I'm skeptical too. I'd really like to try it out. Have you tried out the Road Link at all? While we're talking about, I haven't. I talked to I talked to Mitch a couple months ago about the Road Link because he got it firsthand and was playing around with it, and the audio quality. It sounds good. He hasn't had any problems with it, but Mitch doesn't spend a lot of time in, in heavy Wi-Fi environments. I mean, he uses it in his downstairs True. studio and like on a few shoots out in out in the wild with his kids and so on. So nothing so, but, where you're going to really put it through heavy paces. 
well, and that's that's what I'm interested in because uh, you know for fifty bucks, uh, if you have nothing else and you're just breaking into it, the the mono price option is not terrible. You know, compared to if you really don't have anything else, um, is the but, mono price uh, option fifty dollars? I thought it was a uh, hundred nope. and some dollars. Nope, nope, you got scammed. Uh, it is eighty-five dollars MSRP according to their website, and currently at fifty dollars. Uh, the review is three stars out of five on their own website. Ooh. But um, for the mono price, so but this this Asden, I would love to check out because you're right. Like it, it could be pretty decent, um, depending on how it hops frequencies and everything else. And I've heard good things about the road link, but like I said, every road link test when they like test range and stuff like that, they don't do it in a heavy two point four gigahertz environment. They aren't in a an apartment complex or you know in the middle of a classroom with like 10 people on their laptops you know all doing stuff and watching youtube so uh but this could become a great option for filmmakers if the quality is there uh and you know the performance is there in terms of how good the signal strength is because this is a super low-end option um you know and i imagine because it's asden it's probably going to have pretty good preamps on the lobs because that's part of it too is it's not just the encoding and decoding phase and going over 2.4 gigahertz and jumping rf frequencies you also need a decent preamp uh one thing i love about it is that the battery life uh they claim 11 hours out of the transmitter and like 16 hours out of the receiver uh so to me that's like you charge it up this is an all-day affair basically so yeah, I'm looking uh, at the love- Amazon reviews right now, and it, they're they're saying about 35 feet. So, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, you always hear these like outlandish claims of 100 feet. It, you know, even with yeah. your laptop and regular Wi-Fi router in the best of conditions, you know, 100 feet is is probably pushing it as far as bandwidth availability goes. Uh, well, and and 35 feet. Uh, means you can't use it at 35 feet, to be honest. If if that's where you find kind of, okay, I start getting interference and drop out, that means, one, either you're in an area hammered with interference, uh, or two, that that's, like, not your safety margin. Your safety yeah, margin, maybe if somebody like 20 says, feet. if I test it, yeah, and I get 30 or 35 feet, I go, okay, I'm not going to use this past 15 feet, because then I don't know what to expect. And wireless audio... It's always been a fight. That's why UHF, VHF, and everything else has been, you know, used like crazy and technology's jumping all over the place with it. Now people are trying 2.4 gigahertz um, in order to make them cheaper and make them license-free and work all over the world. So, uh, you know, it's interesting, and I'd love to give it a shot and try it out. Um, and I'd love to put it head-to-head against the Roadlink because I've heard really good things about the Roadlink, but like I said, I still haven't seen anyone really punish the Roadlink and put it in a really crappy environment and see how well it handles. Um because it's the same thing with UHF. Your Sennheisers don't automatically jump frequencies. Uh, uh, the newer ones do. They, the the three series the uh, units, the, the G3s. I'm on the... Oh, they'll, they'll I'm, actually hop? Yeah, I'm, I'm still on the G2, but the G3 Me has too. intelligent uh, frequency control systems in it. So it can actually scan ahead and jump within the designated range. So if you're not familiar with the A through C frequency ranges in the United States, um, the A and B frequencies, A I think starts at at 500 megahertz or so and goes up to like 524. And so within that frequency range, it actually scans because it only uses a 10 meg channel. Um, So the 10 meg is in, or no, it actually uses smaller than that. I think it's a 5 meg channel. uh, Never mind. Let's not talk about frequency (laughs) usage and so on. But the point is, is it can go through these channels all the way up to the maximum frequency range, and the smarter ones will actually scan through. And if it detects 
audio or signal usage on any of those other channels, it'll mark them off as not usable and it'll only jump to channels that don't have anything transmitting or receiving on it. So that's which, really which handy. Which I imagine is the same technology that they put inside of their, or that they may have improved on before they put inside their AVX. Because the Sennheiser AVX system, I've always been really interested in trying out. It's supposed to be kind of a dummy proof uh, audio system. And just for most of the time, I would just prefer a dummy system because I'm not trying to get the perfect quality out of a situation. I'm just trying to get good audio quality. Um, so I think the AVX is UHF or something like that as well. I don't think it does the 2.4 gigahertz, but I know that it automatically scans frequencies, fine clean frequencies, and tells each other what frequency they're going to talk on. It sets everything else up by itself. It's also a pricey option for 750 but um, I've heard really good things about it. Well, in my G2s, so, I mean, I think they're six ninety nine or or seven fifty something like that when I bought them new. And even the UWP is yeah. from Sony. I want to say five ninety nine is the entry level price with like a bad lav mic, and then you have to go up from there. Now, one other wireless uh, two point four gigahertz unit that I kind of want to uh, talk about a little bit, and this is one I sort of forgot about, but then I was looking at it and remembered the Audio Technica oh, yeah. uh, System Ten. This one has been quietly getting really good reviews. Uh, it's dual antenna, so you have a little bit of of antenna diversity as well as frequency diversity. Uh, it's supposed to employ, or employ the same frequency hopping system that they're using in the road units, and it's uh, it looks pretty sexy, actually. Uh, they've included some nice features. If you look at the lav mic, I'm trying to bring up an image here. They've got, uh, where is it? Come on. They've got a twist lock uh xlr input uh mini xlr input for your microphone so you don't have to worry about mics being pulled out of the unit it's got a nice little case right here uh that slides into the cold shoe mount for your camera and it's they're generally priced about 50 bucks cheaper than the road link so if anybody has any info on those yeah yeah it's great to do a head-to-head between the audio technica and the road link both being two and four gigahertz I might once I get back from Singapore, I might have to uh, hit uh, Audio Technica and Road up to do some side by sides with these. Well, and I bet you, I bet you that the Road has antenna uh, diversity like built into the body. Pack. You think it's so? Obviously not external because uh, you I can't see. So. I mean, it's just that round little circle on the the receiver unit and the transmitter. I don't see any. The, no, no, it doesn't have any uh, visibly showing antennas. I think it's got antennas on both sides of the body. You think I so? I think that's part of the reason why they built it so big, too, because it's kind of bulky. But um, I think that it probably has diversity, and that's probably how it gets away with doing 2.4 gigahertz decently. Because uh, just about every Wi-Fi point out there that's worth its weight in terms of like giving you good signal and good coverage and everything else... Uh, has some kind of antenna diversity to it. A lot of corporate Wi-Fi points. I know way too much about this stuff. Uh, it, it has multiple antennas, and part of the reason for multiple antennas is like beam forming technology, which is really just uh, you know understanding uh, antenna diversify so that even if it means it only improves the signal by like one or two dB, because radio signals are measured in dB, and I don't understand why, but it is, uh, <laughs> it'll hop between different antennas so that it can get the best reception possible. So when people walk in front of it or objects move or something like that and something bounces off of this or that, it maintains that uh, that great signal lock and that quality. So, yeah, we definitely, I would love Man. to do a head and head, see how this the is... uh, road this turned into a technical. deep technical dive today. I mean, we're yeah, really right? like digging in deep into this stuff. I, I right. feel like because we took a week off, I have just a lot of nerd to unload. I don't know. 
All right, next up on the list, guys, is actually a firmware update. If you're a Sony A7S Mark II shooter, you probably remember us talking about the issues with Black Sun. Uh, this was the same thing that plagued uh, many of the cameras from Blackmagic in their early firmware updates. Basically, anything that overexposed a sensor would give you black instead of pure white, which is very unfortunate. Uh, this was only for the PAL issue, and it looks like there is a firmware update 1.10. They were pretty fast on this i mean devin do you have anything to add to that it's a 250 meg firmware update so i don't know they put a freaking operating system on Uh, the camera that's pretty aggressive well you know chances are probably that it's just the entire operating system for the camera they're just Uh, running embedded linux on this thing well no it's it's probably just like the entire firmware to run the camera i maybe they didn't engineer it in a way that they can do uh small a block writing to the firmware yeah. and so when you do a firmware update they're rewriting the entire camera's firmware which generally if that's the case that's dangerous to do because that's how you can brick devices so but i yeah. imagine they probably have some kind of subsidiary firmware or something like that some sub firmware that'll fix any issues you have but i've updated my have a7s and uh it does give you the scary like make sure you don't unplug this because your camera will become a paperweight it's <laughs> a little unnerving when you $2, see something thousand like dollar paperweight yeah. um yeah, so I have nothing to add. It's great to see that. It's just great to see Sony respond this fast to uh, a big problem with their cameras and shows that they really are invested in um, in, in this in this product line and in filmmakers using their gear. Now, while we're talking about firmware updates, Devin, uh, you put this in the show notes, and I didn't even see this because I've been moving for the last <laughs> week. Uh, what does this Metabone Speed uh, Speed Booster firmware update add to the Metabone Speed Booster adapter? I don't know. You tell me. Uh, <laughs> no, the uh, <laughs> Because I don't use one. Uh, no, but it looks like it's just... I don't think they've improved autofocus speed. Like you said, they already made a big improvement with the last firmware update. I think what they're just updating is it allows you to use your uh, your extenders, your 2Xers or 1.4Xers or whatever Canon EF uh, extenders, which some people, I think, you know, do for nature photography or this or that. Um, it just allows autofocus to work through those kinds of systems. So, or I guess F8 autofocus. I guess there is a problem uh, going to F8 on those extenders. So, uh, but I, to me, it's just like very quickly coming out after the last firmware. So I think it shows that Metabones is not asleep at the wheel and they're listening to their consumer base and they're providing fixes as fast as they can. I can say that uh, I have actually started carrying my Metabone Speed Booster adapter around as a regular use case. Not the with, autofocus works? Yeah, now that the <laughs> autofocus works. Like Before that, I would just go to my 25mm f1.4 and use that one, but uh, as soon as they brought autofocus to the picture... I can throw, I have the uh, 51.4 as well as the 51.2. The 51.4 is my kind of like travel lens because it's so light. And now I can toss that in with my Micro Four Thirds stuff, stick it on the adapter. Same with the 85.18. Uh, it's way lighter than the 1.2, so I don't carry that around very often unless I really need F1.2. But you put it on the speed booster, now you're getting a little bit more light out of it. Uh, good yep. autofocus. It makes those two lenses very useful for uh, the GH4 body. And now I was on the edge of selling my uh, speed booster. Now I'm, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to keep using it. And I'm <laughs> pretty happy with it now that it actually does what I want it to do. And then the combination of that and the Kepin adapter that allows autofocus without the speed booster portion, that means that I can get a 100 millimeter focal range out of the 50 
and whatever 85 times two is someone do the math quickly for me uh, i think it's like 170 but 170 out of the other one so i have the reach when i want it and then i put it on the speed mm-hmm. booster and i'm getting somewhere in the range of like 70 ish on the 50 and somewhere in the range of like 120 or so on the 85 uh, obviously these numbers are off the top of my head so i'm not doing math very well right now but man <laughs> i actually am kind of happy with the speed booster now that they've added that now moving on from there this uh last couple of stories and we've kind of already we're almost into an hour here Devin so yes we are <laughs> let's uh let's talk about this apple box man what do you know about this thing you're interested in the apple box I no thought the i'm apple not really box. interested in it i just want to know what the <laughs> hell it is um it's a simple concept somebody took an apple box cut some holes in it and mounted some bowls for mounting your tripod heads it's one of those things that um there it's not like there's a big market for and it's not revolutionary and changing but for uh, I I, f- I think for things like grip trucks and stuff like that, it's one of those really handy things to have uh, because you have to carry around Apple boxes anyways. They take up space. Uh, how can you you know make them more effective or use them? And so this is a way that you can you know get this, build it basically yourself too. But you can get an Apple box. It'll work as an Apple box. People can stand on it. You can place props on it, do whatever you need to do with your Apple box. And then at the same time, if you're like, oh, man, we need to get a low shot or we need to set up, you know, in the back of a car or something like that, uh, this, you know, becomes a set of uh, baby legs or whatever for you to mount your camera onto. So it kind of gives you a dual purpose. And to me, it wasn't so much buying it because right now it doesn't seem like there's a way for an American to buy it. Uh, It was more just very interesting as like, this is something I could do on my own. I don't need to use their design or anything like that, but... Getting a bowl adapter uh, with a couple bolts and stuff like that isn't that hard to come by if you <laughs> search around on B&H Photo. Uh, and especially if you like doing a little bit of carpentry work and stuff like that, I feel like you could do this with hand tools. So it's just kind of a really cool concept that I thought, oh, that's really smart. Why didn't I think of that kind of a thing? When I saw this, the first thing I thought is I have a CNC machine downstairs that I could <laughs> totally plug in and just create one of these. And then I started thinking about it like, OK, wait a minute. What if you have an Apple box, but instead of just allowing for the bowl mount now, what if you put like a battery charger in there or what if you put some other crap in there? Because, you know, you have it's yeah. just an empty box. It's so a lot you, of empty space. Yeah. You could put whatever you want into that. And I mean, if you're carrying it around anyway, now make it the Swiss army knife of your film shoot. You know, maybe put a light in there, uh, you know, do yeah, some no, wacky stuff like that. It's an interesting concept The what I liked about them. I mean, uh, when you see the if you look at the images that he had up before, uh, it, it's got the I forget what size it is, but it's got the huge bowl head. Oh, the hundred millimeter instead of the like seventy yeah. five. Yeah, it's got a seventy five and it's got a hundred. And I'm thinking to myself, that's part of the reason why I would focus on building this myself because I don't have a need for a hundred because I've never owned a tripod head that big. Um, <laughs> and as you can see there, he's got um oh, I forget the company that makes that uh head. It's an S something, but um. They, uh, you know, just about everyone uses the 70 or whatever. So I would put one, you know, kind of where they have it. And I'd put one on the long end of it, too. So I could stand up the box and have it slightly taller if I needed that, too. But this replaces a need for having a separate set of baby legs, which people always seem to forget. Like, uh, I go to this website that's called shittyrigs.com or something like that. Shittyrigs.com. <laughs> It's 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 a good laugh. If you work in film production, it's nothing but uh, people uploading images from set where they're like, 
oh, we forgot the tripod plate. So you just see a camera gaff taped to a tripod head. It's stuff like that. Uh, but I notice in a lot of those photos, they're always trying to get low shots and somebody forgot the baby legs or what have you. And they're always strapping the camera to like, you know, shoes and stuff like that on the ground because they don't have uh, a proper mounting point for their stuff. And this just seems like something that's uh, <laughs> he's posting some pictures right there. Um of some of the stuff that they do, you'll see people hang stuff off ladders and people use C-stands as tripods and stuff <laughs> like that. So it's, it's a, you know, if you want to laugh or something like that, it's, it's a pretty fun website. I have it in my RSS reader uh, so I can watch it all the time. But yeah, you know, there's somebody using an aquarium to make their, uh, you know, camera waterproof and put it in the lake. I have so. done that before. <laughs> I am guilty of that. Wow. So, yeah. A lot okay. of fun. A lot of fun to browse that site. We don't need to keep browsing it right now. We've finished out the show. But Yeah, you got me like um, just sucked in. I'm watching this. No, you call them baby legs. I I uh, never heard the term baby legs until you just said it. Before that, I'm sorry. I, I just called it like a, a, a small tripod or a low shot. You know, I have a bunch of those. Um, I think they're 190 series Manfrotto tripods that actually yeah. fold almost completely flat to the ground you can, mm-hmm. you can get them down to where they're you know only three inches or four inches off of the deck uh and right so you call them baby legs well uh man frodo likes to call them a hi-hat mini tripod yep i've heard uh, hi-hat i've heard mini tripod i've never uh, heard baby legs well you don't believe me just search for uh you know camera baby legs or something like that on google and you'll find a bunch of man frodo hi-hats and stuff like that it's um uh I don't know. I I heard the term from somewhere, and it obviously stuck in my head. So uh, a a few other tripod companies, uh, Chantler, stuff like that, will call them baby legs in their actual product description. So I'm going to have to test that out when I'm on set (laughs) next week. Just, uh, hey, bring me some baby legs and see what happens. Well, you know film sets. They always got to come up with weird names for stuff. They can't just... You know, oh, give me a C forty seven. Yeah, well, so. sometimes I screw up, and I'm just like, give me that thing over there because I can't remember what the hell they're supposed to call it, and I need it now. Yeah, bring it. And it's, <laughs> that thing, just point yeah. at stuff. That's well, that's how TJ runs like, his sets. Magic arms, you know, like uh, I always call them magic arms, but you know, in reality, they're adjustable friction arms. And magic yeah. arms is a brand from Manfrotto. So when you right. ask for a magic arm, sometimes it's people like will bring you anything. Kleenex. But sometimes they'll bring you the heavy duty, like able to lift a hundred pounds magic arm. Right, and you don't want this ones. monstrous <laughs> thing. You want a freaking little tiny friction arm to hold up a light or like, you know, hold up some reflector or something like that. Right. And so you gotta be really careful, like, okay, I just need an adjustable friction arm. And then they're like, Oh yeah, you one of those cheap ones? Yeah, grab it out of my bag. Okay, go, <laughs> good. All right, last thing on the list here, and this is um something we've sort of talked about. Devin corrected me. Tell me about this Amazon uh, Writers program, this uh, yeah, Story Writer. You. <laughs> yes, um, you did. Story Writer. Um, so uh, this is interesting news. Now, we talked before about Amazon uh, looking for scripts, looking for screenplays and stuff like that. And it looked, it looked like it was a pretty promising program for people who have scripts and they're trying to get them out there and stuff like that. Amazon's interested in scripts. Why? Because they're trying to create original content because they're out to compete with Netflix and uh, all those different markets. And right now, I think, too, Amazon's got a couple of shows that they've had out for a while that have gotten pretty good reviews. It seems like things are going well for them. And I don't know if any of those shows are directly from this program. Uh, but still, Amazon is now... In, in, in interest to generate more content or get more ideas for stories and stuff like that is launching a free app uh, for screenwriting. And I haven't used it yet. I've just kind of looked at it. It looks pretty straightforward. Screenwriting apps these days are pretty straightforward anyways. 
Uh, but uh, it, it looks like a really cool, cool idea. Um, I didn't see any real collaboration options, so if that's something for you, you might want to go to a writer duet or some other kind of online uh, system for your screenplays. But uh, the big thing that kind of changed recently with Amazon is the fact that Amazon was getting a lot of fire, apparently. Uh, I didn't experience this, so I can't speak to this, but I uh, was getting a lot of fire because they were they were optioning or trying to option scripts for free. So if somebody wasn't a uh, WGA uh, which is a Writer Guild of America or something like that, or association. Uh, if you were in the Writers Guild, they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't give you any money for an option. They'd be like, "Oh, we'll option this for free," which kind of negates the point because an option is when somebody's like reserving the rights to make your script potentially in you know so many years or something like that, whatever the uh, deal is about. And offering no money to hold on to your script to prevent somebody else from writing the script is just like. It's in bad blood because you're preventing other companies from potentially making that script, uh, and it doesn't cost you anything to stop other companies from making that script. So the writer gets screwed out of all that. That's part of the reason why they have guilds. So uh, they were under fire for that, and it seems like they've made a huge change where they say now, even if you're not part of the guild, uh, they'll offer, they will meet or exceed acceptable guild minimums for optioning your script. So it seems like uh, they're trying to turn things around and become a more legit source for uh, screenwriters and stuff like that to submit their scripts to. Honestly, this kind of feels like uh, uh, where things are going in terms of like Netflix. You know, Netflix is doing crazy stuff where they yeah. release an entire season in one day. And I wouldn't be surprised if like a lot of the TV show industry, I don't know about movies because movies is a dinosaur. It's been kind of, you know, a certain way in a long time, it takes a long time to move, but TV moves fast. And I wouldn't be surprised if now writers for TV shows just get picked up on like their skill set alone, not necessarily who they know or anything like that. They submit to a process, a bunch of, you know, probably interns or something like that at Amazon go through a bazillion scripts. And when they find something with talent, uh, it may be an actual legit way for people with talent to kind of shortcut into the industry and start getting involved and uh, start writing stories and stuff like that and getting stuff produced. Because uh, that's a big thing for writers is getting their content produced and getting people to see their content. So it's kind of exciting in that market. Uh, I'm not a writer myself, uh, but it's one of those things that I get really excited about because I see it as a change in the industry, whether it's good or bad. There's a lot of ups and downs about it. Uh, but just like Uber or anything else that's out to upset the industry, I'm all for it because after the dust settles, it usually, in one way or another, means something better than what it was before. So Now, this is something I'll probably catch a lot of uh, guff for, but uh, <laughs> in a lot of our low-budget films, I mean, we just go out uh, on Craigslist or on uh, any of these other like advertising bits and say, hey, uh, I think TaskRabbit is one of them we use. Like, hey, we'll give mm -hmm. you 50 bucks to write a short film. And, you know, we get 20 or 30 submissions. We just anything that looks even remotely decent. We send out $50 to get the rights to it and go. And it's that simple. And no, it, that, uh, and see, it and seems see like awful to the writers because we're not paying them very much. But a lot of them, they just they want to get their first IMDb credit. And mm -hmm. if I'm able to provide that for them, then they're really excited. And even if they get a little bit of, of cash out of it. And uh, my friend Tony, he writes a lot of our stuff now. He's just gotten it to where it's like almost a, a sweatshop factory when he writes his scripts. Like the guy cranks out four or five scripts like on his lunch break over the course of a <laughs> week, you know, and he's a physical trainer. So he thinks about it while he's like teaching people how to run and stuff like that. He hops on his computer, bangs out a script in like 30 or 40 minutes and sends it to us right away. And we just give him 50 bucks a pop and he does pretty decent on it. So, you know, 
it's kind of weird. I do see where the the unions make a lot more sense as a financial viability option for writers, but at the same mm-hmm. time, so many people are writers these days that I feel like I'm kind of that jerk that takes advantage of the ability to get someone to just crank out something for me really fast. And a lot of people, if you're like, hey, we're going to film this, they'll write a script for you for free no, and give it to you just totally because they want to have their stuff created. And we even invite them on set and like let them. I, I did a drama a couple of years ago, and I don't normally do dramas because they don't make very much money. But this was like an emotional suicide drama thing with a, a girl who like breaks up their boyfriend and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the or the writer, like th- this, uh, she's like a ghost hunter or something, you know, odd like that. But we were like, hey, I don't, we're not going to pay you for this. But if you want to write something, we'll shoot it. And she, she banged out a script in a week. We sent her in revisions. She fixed everything that we wanted. She changed uh, some of the stuff in the story to accommodate the scenes. And then we invited her out on set, and she got to see her story created. Uh, we made a little bit of money off of the short, but uh, you know she was just happy to come to set and see her her writing turned into an actual uh, video production. And you know when she saw it on the big screen at a, a indie festival, like she was really happy about it. So I mean. I didn't pay her very much at all. I paid for her gas to come over to the no, shoot. But at, but at the same time, at the same time, like that's uh, you can start making the same complaints about people who go on Craigslist asking for free videographers. Yeah, that's I've true. been a part of that area of the market for a long time, and DJ's been out of that market for a very long time because he doesn't look for work on Craigslist anymore. Uh, no. But I can tell you that a lot of it is exactly uh, you get what you pay for. Um, and, and for some people, while people are like, oh, this destroys the market and stuff like that, it devalues, um, filmmakers and stuff. While there's some arguments you can make about that, I don't think a lot of it is largely true. It's kind of like when you bring in the argument about, uh, piracy to films and stuff like that. And yeah, piracy can hurt a lot of, uh, uh, viability of film and making films and stuff like that. But at the same time, most of piracy that's happening, uh, you know, is not uh, necessarily stealing money away because if they had to pay for it, then they wouldn't watch it anyways. They're only watching it because it's free. And that's and that's not to justify stealing or anything like that, but that's the market and where it currently is. And it's the same thing for videographers. Uh, when people are like, oh, everyone's asking for free work, and then these guys give them free work, and I'm like, yeah, but if the work costs $500, $700, these people wouldn't pay for it anyways. So either way, like no one's losing a job out of this situation. Uh, and, and each situation is a little different. But in general, too, I've done a lot of is um, whether this this may seem underhanded or what have you. But uh, for some projects that I think, uh, you know, may potentially lead to more work or something like that. And but they're asking for free work. I'll submit my work. I'll show them what I can do. Um, and then they're like, great, we want to work with you. You got great stuff. And of course, most of the time it's better than whoever else is submitting for a free job. And then, and then they'll, uh, they'll, they'll come back and, you know, be like, oh, great. We want to work with you on this and this day and everything else. And I, I apologize. I say, I'm sorry. Uh, I must've misread your ad. I only, you know, can do this, uh, as a day shoot for like 700 bucks or something like that. If you want this equipment and you want it shot this way and everything else. And, Half the time they like are like, all right, thank you. We'll go with somebody else because it's not in our budget. And the other half of the time they'll be like, you know what? You're worth the money. I realize I want a better video than what I was going to get for free. And now I'm willing to pay because you're showing me, hey, if you pay something, you'll get a much better video out of it. So that's I mean, that's hit or miss that some people may call that underhanded. But for me, it's 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 how I market myself is I go, look, I don't produce free videos. My videos are worth money. 
uh, because they're of a certain quality. And so if you don't want that quality, by all means, go and get kids, uh, you know, who are looking for free work and who are looking to get their hands on something, which there's plenty of that to go around. And oh, there's yeah. plenty of kids who are willing to work for free. But every time you see one of those videos, you know, customers or whatever will be able to tell and be like, that's kind of a crappy video. Why would they, you know, make a video like that? So it, it, it depends. It, you know, it, it's uh, but in all while people make complaints about that kind of stuff, I don't think that that's actually happening where people are losing work, losing jobs. And I don't think looking for a writer on Craigslist who's looking for their first break or something like that is devaluing the market or anything like that. I think that this is naturally where the market is, because just because people are doing it for free doesn't mean that there's a loss of money. It, it just means that there's more people trying to do more stuff. Uh, so, well, and you know, it's, it's uh, each, each their own. I'm kind of a hypocrite because. On one side, I'm like, well, I don't want to get paid less. But then I go <laughs> out there and I'm like, hey, would you guys be willing to do this for less? So in that regard, I'm kind of uh, bad about that. But I do, uh, on the other side, I do donate my time a lot to uh, indie projects. Uh, I won't charge them like rental fees. I'll just charge them my hourly rate or, you know, I'll even go like half on some projects when I think it's really cool. And, you know, sometimes like that no, pays no, we, off. We, we get, all like, do that the, stuff. You get the festival circuits out of it and you get like some, you know, IMDb credits and so on. And sometimes that stuff is more valuable than the time that you wasted shooting on it. And other times like you end up on a project where you shoot for a week straight, you get paid something, but not enough. And then the project just disappears or, you know, goes into the ether because somebody lost funding or somebody didn't finish something or somebody quit, you know. Sure. Well, and there's there's many levels to this, and we, we don't need to have another hour of our podcast know, about right? discussing psychology of uh, and economics. But uh, at the same time, there are some people out there who want to do this kind of work and are willing to do it for free, uh, and that creates opportunities that there otherwise wouldn't be. You need the, there also are some people who aren't exactly cut for video production but they like doing it so they don't make a life out of it but it's a hobby for them and they like doing that stuff uh and this provides an opportunity for them to work and do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do uh same thing goes for writers there's some people who really love writing but won't necessarily you know maybe aren't learning fast enough or uh, you know, maybe just in their head, it's just not really a good fit for them, but they still want to do it. And I think that, you know, this market allows for those people to do what they want to do, um, even if they won't get paid for it. I think that what this does and the most of the people that complain about things like uh, free cameramen and free writers and stuff like that, it takes away from the few people who got into a position to get paid very well for doing crappy work. Because now those people don't have a leg to stand on when people could get the same crappy work from someone who isn't in the guild or get the same crappy work from some kid in a DSLR. So it prevents kind of like, I don't really want to say scam artists, they're still doing their job, they're, you know, doing, but, you know, the people who used to, okay, I'll spend 2000 on a camera, and I'm one of the few people in my, you know, city, neighborhood who has a camera, and I'll just start making money. Because, uh, you know, that was kind of a thing happening during the early 90s and stuff like that when uh, DV tapes were getting cheap and DV cameras were getting cheap. And uh, it allowed a lot of people to just buy equipment who didn't know necessarily how to use it to its full ability to start getting jobs and charging people thousands upon thousands. And 
you know, now those people can't be here anymore because there's people willing to do it for free. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, people uh, who are interested in quality work will pay that quality money. They know that there's a relationship between the two. And some people are going to get scammed out of the system like this, too. There's some people who can see quality work and not pay for it uh, because there's a, a guy who allows himself to kind of get abused by the system. But those people usually eventually get burned out, and there will be people to replace people like that. But they'll get burned out. They'll either stop doing it or they'll start charging money for it. One way or another, the system will change and adjust itself. So uh, it's by all means isn't perfect, but uh, I just I don't like to hear people going around complaining that uh, this kind of stuff is bad for the marketplace and it's taking away jobs and it's making it harder to be a video guy and everything else because I don't think a lot of it is true. I think the demand for video has gone way up. I think that the price... Uh, people are willing to pay for video may has gone down a little bit because the technology has gotten cheaper and the cameras have gotten cheaper. Now yeah, we can your use investment LED is lights. definitely way lower than it used to be. I mean, uh, but imagine when it comes. Yeah. When, but when it comes to people, when it comes to their skill set and their work and cinematographers and directors and everything else, they're still going to get paid what they should be getting paid for that kind of a job. And uh, part of it's just economics. If you've got, you know, f- 5,000 great directors, uh, that's going to lower the cost of what it co- takes to buy a great director. So as more and more people become available to do these kinds of jobs, it's going to make it cheaper. But then also, too, it gets cheap enough and people start leaving the marketplace because now there isn't as much money in it. And I'm just going to go somewhere else and do another job where I can make more money. And so then that makes scarcity in the market and that makes prices go up a bit. So it's always a fluctuating market. Uh, I just I, I don't I can't. It's too much of a blanket statement to see that this kind of stuff is bad. So now on with Craigslist on with Amazon stealing all of your story ideas. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> and um, paying you nothing for them. One thing so. I would like to point out, though, and I do know a couple of people that kind of worked that route where they own an expensive camera and were charging regular rates. You know what they moved into? What? They moved into courtroom videography. Oh, yeah. Big money it's in that. It's huge. Like, they don't, and they do less work than they did before. You point the mm-hmm. camera at the freaking stand. You point the camera at, like, two other things in the courtroom. And you just have to make sure that your cameras continue to run throughout the entire yep. day as the courtroom action continues. And they they can rack up, you know, 50, 60 bucks an hour on this stuff. Oh, yeah. There's no editing, really, because, I mean, you're just turning over the transcripts and the tapes to these people. There's no, you know, there's no real, like, uh, uh, lighting or anything like that. Your audio stuff is really simple because all the courtrooms are wired for a PA system. Yeah. And so they just go plug their cameras <laughs> into the PA system, run some cables over, plop them down in the middle of the floor, and then they just babysit cameras. I mean, it's not creative work, and it's boring as no. all get out, but you're getting very decent day rates to do it. Uh, there are some stipulations like you do have to, uh, in many States you have to get licensed as a professional, or whatever, and you have to take a test and so on. But I can't imagine it's any harder than getting your like CDL or your driver's license or something like that. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it, not recommending anybody move into this market. is <laughs> like their bread and butter, unless you really want to just do boring video stuff. But it's definitely something to think about and something that I didn't realize was even a thing until I started talking to a couple of these guys I've known for years. And you're like, what are you up to now? He's like, oh, yeah, I still yeah. do film. I'm like, where at? Like, oh, at the courthouse? Like, what? <laughs> and then he explains it to me. And you're just like, man, I could have like subleased, yeah. a, you know, I could have gotten somebody for like $15 an hour to work underneath of me to, and gotten the contract for that sure. and then had them do that and then just rake the money off the top. I mean, th- yeah, oh. yep. But that's and, and that's part of 
the market adjusting for itself because once uh, creating commercials and stuff like that becomes too hard to do for such a low price, those kinds of people who are just in it for the cheap money leave the marketplace. So that adds some scarcity and, you know, makes the market balance itself. All right. On that note, we've dug way too deep into this (laughs) subject. Devin, where can people find you, man? Uh, You can find me on Twitter at DevoCut. Feel free to ask me questions or berate me or tell me I'm an idiot. And, uh, you know, I could I could go for a good Twitter fight. So bring it on. Whoa. Uh, No Twitter fights here. You guys can find the show on SoundCloud, on iTunes, anywhere uh, podcasts are distributed. You can find me at DSLR Film Noob on Twitter. Also, swing over to DSLRFilmNoob.com for some updates. On occasion, there was actually a great post I put up about Road. Uh, Those guys were really awesome with customer service the other day, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about that. So that's on there. Uh, Show-wise, we are going to be off the air and on the air for the next couple weeks as I travel overseas. When I get back, we will continue our normal lineup in through the Christmas time area of the month. Uh, Devin, I will let you know if I can squeeze in a show sometime yeah. while I'm in Singapore in one of my micro yeah. hotels because, micro uh, hotels. yeah, well, okay. A side note before we close out, did you know that there are hotels with no windows? No, I didn't either, but (laughs) they were trying to put me in a hotel room that has no windows because it was going to save like $75 a night. And I didn't even know that was a thing. And then I looked at windows. Yeah. But uh, I mean, no windows. Like, what are you like in a closet somewhere behind an office or something? I don't know. It's then the motel rooms are already like 120 square feet. So they're super small. They're like the size of a bathroom in America. It's uh, a I. It doesn't necessarily surprise me because I've always thought about that problem because uh, I'm weird like that. When I stay in a hotel, I think about, well, okay, how can you maximize the area so that each room can have a window with somewhat of a view? And that's why you'll end up with like hotels that are built in a circle or, um, you know, the, the center. Or the standard box style. Yeah. Yep. And, and so that way everyone has a window that faces the outside. But I think about like... If you really needed to cram people into a building, you would need to create rooms that don't have windows. And how depressing would that be? And obviously you're finding that because it's expensive. uh, You can save a lot of money if you don't want a room with a balcony and you just just need a box to sleep in. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note, guys, we'll see you next time on another episode of DSLR Film Noob Podcast. (laughs) 